I'm Dr. Josefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Parshat Tzaveh focuses on the priestly garments, the breastpiece, the choshen, the ephod, a robe, the me'il, a fringe tunic, headdresses, sash, after these pieces are detailed, which are placed on the high priest and which on regular priests, Aaron and his sons are robed. That is, they are dressed and prepared for duty. Instructions are relayed for the inauguration ceremony of the priest, but this ceremony only takes place in Vaikara chapters 8 and 9. This ceremony combines animal and meal offerings, washing the bodies of the priests and dressing them. The parasha ends with the building details of the incense altar, the Mizbeach HaKtoret, which is really part of a longer section that follows and that is included in Parshat Kitisa, which details additional elements of the Mishkan not mentioned until now. The final section of the parasha will be the focus of today's conversation. Today, I welcome a new guest to the podcast, Dr. Oral Wiskin-Elper, who is an associate professor at the Graduate Program in Jewish Thought at Mechala Jerusalem College and at Ono Academic College Israel. She is the author of Hasidic Commentary on the Torah, a National Jewish Book Award finalist, which is a wide-ranging study comprehending 200 years of Hasidic homiletics. She's the author of Wisdom of the Heart, the teachings of Rabbi Yaakov of Ishbetzeradzin, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, which will be the basis of today's conversation, and Tradition and Fantasy in the Tales of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. She has a forthcoming monograph on Yoshua Heschel Rabinovich, who was the rev of a small Ukrainian chassidut. Drawing from a range of disciplines, Ora seeks to integrate two approaches that are often held to be mutually exclusive, critical treatment of traditional Jewish texts aided by the relevant academic scholarship, along with sustained attentiveness to the spiritual and experiential dimensions of the topics in question. Ora, it is a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I want to give a shout out to what I told her before we actually started recording, which is that I first heard a, a very moving interview with uh, with Ora on the 1840 podcast, which I really recommend. I feel like it was a very inspiring story of just sort of a, a discovery over many years. So I, I really recommend that conversation. And today we will be speaking about the perspectives of Rabbi Yaakov, who I mentioned in the introduction, uh, on the final portion of today's Parsha. But before we get to that, those pieces of Torah, I was wondering, uh, Ora, if you could sort of describe for us a little bit, since this series is focusing on uh, 19th, 20th century slash somewhat modern uh, thinkers and their perspectives on the Parsha. I was wondering if you could bring us a little bit into that world. Uh, we we spoke a little bit about a different chassidut last week, and so if you could bring us into the world of, uh, of Rabbi Yaakov, that would be wonderful. Rabbi Yaakov was actually the second Hasidic rabbi in a, in a small uh, Hasidic group that was founded by his father, Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitzer. Mordechai, that the Meshiloch, the author of the Meshiloch. So I take one more step backwards. He was um, originally a Talmud of Tabunim of Pshischa, and part of the whole revolution in Hasidut that took place in Pshischa in the 1820s. Pshischa initiated a new, a very new sort of relation to Jewish sources and path in Avodat Hashem, and which was very emphasizing the individual and individual striving for a relationship with Hashem and individual expression in religious life. The Mea Shiloh was a Talmud of Simcha as a young man 
after his death, he died in 1827. The Meshach moved with most of Simcha Bunin's uh, Talmudim. He moved to Kotsk, and the Rebbe of Kotsk became his Rebbe. And that was until 1840. It was sort of a, a, a year that, sort of, that changed a lot of, of paradigms. And that year, the Meshach broke off from the Kotsker and moved to Ishbitza, and that's when he founded this Hasidut that also was a sort of a black sheep um, in Polish Hasidism. He was considered a, a heretic, and uh, to this day, most scholars try to represent him as someone who was antinomian and, and tried to break all of the, or many of the, of the established sort of tenets of, of, of Jewish faith and observance. In any case, the Meshilor had a number of students. One of them was the, was the Tzadik Akon of Lublin. And another one of his, I would say, like most prominent followers and students was his son, Rabbi Yaakov, um, who often mentions his father. His father, the Meshilor, was clearly a really former, a formative um, influence in his in his own thinking. He cites him often. Many of his teachings are based on the Meshilach. He was basically forgotten or overlooked by, by scholarship and by most of the Jewish world, even people who learned Hasidus. Um, his books went out of print. When I started, I actually heard of Jacob for the first time from my, from my, I love Daniel Epstein who I learned with for many years. And Afshan uh, was one of, I think, a very important person who sort of brought the Beit Yaakov back onto the map. He tells a story himself that when he heard the Beit Yaakov, he couldn't find the Sforim anywhere. He said he finally went to some store in Meisharim and the, the bookseller pulled the book off from the shelf and blew off the dust. And and uh, even when I started learning the Beit Yaakov, I, I couldn't find copies of it. So uh, he was he was considered by in the scholarly world as someone who, whereas his father had been radical and revolutionary, that the Beit Yaakov was considered a conservative and retreated from all of the more radical elements of his father. And then the Beit Yaakov's son was the Gershon Khan the Balat Khalet, who himself was also revolutionary in many of his in many of his uh, innovations. The Beit Yaakov sort of fell into the abyss in between the two of them. So when I started writing about, I discovered his writings and, and, and started learning them, I took on the mission, I guess you could say, of, of, of trying to understand really what his message was, if he was radical, not radical, like his father, not like his father. I mean, he has, there are four huge volumes. So the book that I wrote, The Wisdom of the Heart, basically, it doesn't talk about everything in the Beit Yaakov, but I tried to find like some of the most cogent uh, themes that I could. And in answer to your question, a long answer to a very short question of Drashot that he wrote, so I figured there must be something significant here. The, I guess, overarching theme that I tried to, that I think is present in the, in the Beit Yaakov is really a new path of his um, in, in uh, religious life, spiritual life in general, which has a lot to do with inner the inner life. And specifically what what I anyway what I want to say today that the Beit Yaakov has a very unusual um, interest and emphasis on aspects of life that most people overlook. Um, that people we tend to think are not important, like uh, sleeping, 
or um, when things don't go well and, and, and how we're supposed to deal with that. Like all of the sort of other sides of life that people tend to prefer to ignore. It sounds strange to say that that's his uniqueness, but his uniqueness is in talking about things that people don't think are unique. First of all, I think that's beautiful. And I think it also connects to the historical piece, which is why are all these Hasidic works being unearthed and learned and why is the world thirsty for them? And that's, you know, this is not, uh, we're not doing a whole episode just on, you know, the the renaissance of, of Hasidic thought in today's world, but it really connects with a lot of the the modern trends we have now of looking at our inner worlds, right, of an individualistic focus, right, all of that has really buttressed the the tremendous rise of the popularity of Hasidic thought. Uh, the Me'ashiloch, I'll just go back to the father, right, who's not our figure for today, you know, in the Midrashah, in the Midrashah that I teach, they don't allow anybody to teach it to first-year students, for example, um, simply because they want to feel like they have a basis in the world of Torah and what sort of, you know, be- again, most most of what you'll read in the Mashiach is just going to be highly fascinating. It's not going to be heretical, but for whatever reason, that's sort of the the policy that that's been in place for a long time. And I think that even in the small parts that I've read in in uh, in your book uh, that I've looked at at multiple points over over the last few years, is I think that there's something very meaningful about that. And if I could just put it in the ba- against the backdrop of last week's episode where we spoke about the Svata Met, uh, we spoke there very much about how you know these ideas of of the lives. Of of the Rebbe's, for example, and how their personal their personal habits and practices, how it made it into their Torah. You know, you have examples of Rebbe's who were people that didn't sleep ever, right? And they were learning Torah all night and it demanded that they have a lifestyle that is quote unquote objectively not such a balanced one. And and then, you know, you had the policy of the Svatamet where he wouldn't meet the Kahal, right? He wouldn't have uh, audience hours until, you know, except on certain days of the week because he wanted to create those personal boundaries. So I think that it's it's very it's it's very interesting that those sort of personal habit pieces start making it into these modern Torahs, you know, and I think it's something that obviously, you know, the Ramban or Ibn Ezra are not really going to talk about it as much. It wasn't necessarily thought to be something that was significant to put in your commentary, but in in modern commentaries, these lifestyle pieces are, I think that they're very interesting that they make it in there. And ultimately they connect to these questions about, you know, how do people become great? You know, ultimately it comes down to a lot of lifestyle choices. It's not just the gift you're given, but you have to create a lifestyle that supports, you know, the creation of that kind of erudition and scholarship. And of course, avodata midot, an internal uh, an internal uh, rigor that you are going to create in your Avodat Hashem. So I think those things fascinate me on an individual level. They're not the focus of our conversation today, but they're something that I think about. I think about in my own life. I think about that as someone who wants to grow in learning, you know, with lots of young children and a growing family. And these are questions that I constantly think about. We're focusing today on Rabbi Yaakov, and we're going to focus on a Torah that he has regarding the the last part of the parsha about the Mizbech Haktoret and about the 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 ner that is being that is being lit there. So I just wanted to correct the framing of the of the parsha itself. That it's true that all of the parsha talks about the clothing of the of the kohen gadol, and after that about the the sacrifices. But there's a really interesting framing of the, uh, in other words, the beginning, the first psukim and the last psukim 
are actually the topic that I want to talk about because the Beit Yaakov brings this to the fore in a in a in a the most shot reading that you could have. The, the parsha starts out starts out with the menorah and the word and you when Hashem is talking to Moshe and it talks about the, the menorah and that the Kohen, Rona Kohen needs to renew the oil in the lamp twice a day, once in the morning and once ben in the evening. The Western light in the menorah is called the Ner Tamid. That candle never went out, that light never went out, and, and until the until the Horban of the second temple was destroyed. Those are the first uh two psukim of the parasha. And then all the rest, as we said, is about the the vestments and everything. And then at the very end of the parasha, we go we come back again to the Ktoret, to the Mizbeh Ktoret. And there it says as well so the the consonance between the beginning and the end is that both the we have a ner tamid and ktorat tamid both of them are mitzvot tamidiot that they're both done in the morning and in the evening, and they have to be done together. So it's interesting that we have, they frame the parasha, they start with, they start the parasha and end the parasha. And much more interesting is that we learn, particularly in the Zohar, that there's this in, inherent connection between them, that the two of them create a kind of a unity. So that's the textual basis of what we're going to talk about. It's interesting because uh, Rav Hirsch is obviously not coming from a uh, Zoharic uh, background. So he says something also before we jump into our more Hasidic uh, direction here. He says something that I think is, is very moving. And he also points out this, this same piece. He says, Avodat HaNerot V'Aktoret Right, with these two avodot of the of also get of kindling or caring for the candles and the and the incense are dependent on one another. And he says symbolically that's significant. And he doesn't explain exactly how, but he says that this symbolizes that to be a nation that worships Hashem in a way that is full, it has to be sort of put together from uh, from two different things. That this represents sort of like the the ruach or or sort of the the in, the spirit of Am Yisrael, uh, in that they are um, sort of having some sort of internal work and and also maybe perhaps by the nair and also having this uh, this kind of korban. Uh, other parsha name, I think I saw uh, Ramban says something along the lines of that the Torah is sort of there to remind us of the of the spirit of God that's always around. Meaning while you have these very concrete korbanot, the Torah itself is is something that, right, you won't you you smell it, okay? And that it's sort of these incense that get get burned and they're there to symbolize sort of this ever present um spirit or spirituality that uh that exists in in the world. Uh, and and Rav Hirsch finishes his piece, and he says that uh, you know it's the fact that this kind of avodah or this combination of these two pieces of the ner and of the of the ktoret, why does it finish off this uh, sort of this 
Dafka, the Kohen section, right? This was the, what the Kohanim were doing, is because this is the job of the Kohen. The Kohen's job, says Rav Hirsch, is to represent some sort of uh, perfected, molded avodat Hashem that includes, again, he doesn't totally explain what, but in, but sort of combines different kinds of avodot. Maybe he means concrete and, and not concrete or some sort of physical and spiritual worship of God. But he says that that's sort of, that's, the frame, it's not just a frame of the Parsha, but it's the frame really of like a broader concept of Avodat Hashem, of worship of God. I'm curious how, how uh, Rabbi Yaakov's teachings are going to sort of um, touch upon or sort of relate or go in a perhaps different direction than those ideas. Okay, so he does, yes, certainly the idea of the two opposite forces or contrasting forces or something like that. I think what's unusual and fascinating about what he does with them is that he emphasizes not on the same footing those 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 two the two aspects that he wants to talk about and he would add things that we understand things that are cognitively available to people to understand all that has to that's symbolized by the, the menorah by the oil whereas the ktoret the incense is the other side it's all of the things that it's darkness it's inwardness, it's uh, night and sleep, and the things that we don't understand, he calls them tiodo, the things that bother us and worry us. It's our stomach aches and our crying children. And he actually, one of, I think, the most, for me, innovative aspects of, of his teachings is that he points out that the, the ktoa, the incense, is made of refuse. It's made of the skin, uh, the peels and and the flowers of from a fruit, the refuse, the resin, the the things that are excreted from various substances, the the things that usually we 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 put it aside in order to get to the real thing, the klipa that we take off in order to get to the fruit. That's the incense. The incense is made of all those rejected aspects of organic life that that most people throw them away to, to preserve what we think is important. So that on a much deeper level is the kind of combination that he's, hashlama, uh, the kind of attaining wholeness that he's talking about. Most people prefer the clarity, they prefer understanding to the other aspects that we don't understand and don't see. And it's those two together that really create the unity. Interestingly, the way that he represents that kind of paradoxical combination, the symbol of the Keshe Tfilin, right? The, I just have to say on this parsha and on the idea of the Torah specifically, is a connection between the word and the word Ketiru. Ketiru means to Keshe, Keshe, Keter Keshe in his, in the, in the way that the, the, the Zohar has it, they uh, interchange and the Ketovet is called Keshira Divkula. So in order to explain what kind of connection that is that, that we're talking about, um, the Beit Yaakov, he reminds us of this image of the, of the Keshet Tfilin, of, of God's, the knot on God's Tfilin, right, which we know from, from the, the Gemara on, on, on Parashat Kitisa, Moshe Rabbeinu asks to see Hashem. Hashem says, I can't show you my face, but I'll pass over you from the cleft in the rock, and you'll see me from the uh, from the back. And Chazal say, 
there's a lot of interesting things that could be said about that, but what the Bet Yaakov points out is that the tefillin are vessels that contain semantic meaning. In other words, we have psukim and they talk to us about, about Hashem and about reality and about emunah and all sorts of things that our mind can understand. That's part of the tefillin. And then the other part of the tefillin is the ritual, is the straps made of leather. And they're the knot that ties together the leather uh, straps is in the shape of a dalit. And the, where, the, the place where we put the knot is in the back of the head. The back of the head is the place what uh, I think uh, Levinas calls it arrière-pensée, the thoughts we have in the back of our mind. In other words, the things that they're not conscious, the things that we know somewhere but we can't say them or we're not completely aware of them. The knot on the tefillin represents all of those things that the mind can't hold on to. They influence us. They're a huge part of our reality, but we don't have any control over them. So first of all, I just want to continue the, the metaphor that you were aiming at in the beginning, which is that not only are we using the refuse, right, the things that we would call the garbage or the things we'd rather not see, but when you put them all together, they smell good, right? That That's also the beauty of it, is that when they are offered up as a ktoret, Obviously, there's also some other things put in there, but we often think that the things that are our weaknesses or are things that are our vulnerabilities, right? As long as we hide them, we'll look good. But ultimately, if we are, if we utilize them as part of our way that we function in the world, as part of Ravodat Hashem, then they actually create like a much bigger hole. That here, I think the 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 metaphor is that they is that they smell good. Okay, the other piece that I also just wanted to jump in there with is that he's speaking about the subconscious without that word being one that is is used yet, right? Meaning the the back of one's mind, which again in the very, very little uh, Kabbalah that I've, you know, learned until today, it's it's sometimes even associated with like a more feminine uh, side, which is we could leave it on on the side for now because we're not talking necessarily about the Kabbalah right now. But it's speaking about this subconscious, right? And so that's right, isn't that? That's what he's when you talk about the, what's in the back. Uh, it's so the the other things, right? The whole idea of the feminine. I've written about that a lot. It's um, something that I it, I think is definitely a major motif for the Beit Yaakov. In other words, in fact, this whole. Mm -hmm. uh, this whole uh, parsha and the way that he reads it, it's an emphasis on feminine modes as opposed to masculine, which all line up, you know, with the, the side and the and the the darkness. It's all of the symbolism of mystical thought and Hasidic thought go go in that direction. That's why the feminine is threatening because it's okay. things that the mind doesn't. It, it's valences that the mind. The conscious mind, the intellect doesn't really know what to do with, or if you want to use Gilchrist's terms, it's the left, the right hemisphere as opposed to the left hemisphere. It, so what I'm trying to do in this, or what I think the Beit Yaakov is trying to do in my reading anyway, is sort of get beyond that dialectic or the dualism of the positive and the negative and the light and the darkness, talking about how to how to integrate them. And that, if you don't mind, I just want to like go back to the beginning of the parasha, which is the very first word of the parasha is Ve'ata. Ve'ata And again, the Zohar has a lot to say about that, and the Beit Yaakov devotes a number of, of uh, teachings up to that. It, it's a strange interpolation here, because if you look at Parashat Tumah, 
Hashem has been talking to Moshe. He said a hundred, hundreds of things to Moshe. And while all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, he says to him again, Ve'ata. Explains is that the Ve'ata is composed of two parts. It's the Ve, which he says represents the Menorah, and Ata, which represents the Torah. So again, we have this one word in Hebrew. It emphasized that there's some kind of a work, work here that Moshe Gabenu is being taught. That Moshe, that Hashem through this parasha is explaining to him in order to be an integrated personality and teach B'nai Israel how they can be complete Jews. You have to realize that you need to combine the light of the lamps together with the darkness of the incense. Veata, that's like a code to say to Moshe Rabbeinu, it's your job to convey this complex mode of, of living in the world. The things you understand and to believe that all of them have a deeper meaning that Hashem is trying to help you see. On the face of, of the words we have, without going into sort of a deeper, more, um, you know, these more Hasidic ideas, Thinking of what was the backside of Am Yisrael during this period of time, right? Meaning, what were the things that weren't as as neat, or what was the, what were the messy pieces? And I'm sending me really back to these areas of complaint, right? Or in a minute, in the next parsha, we're going to get to Kitisa, and there's going to be a very very messy side of Am Yisrael that comes out in. Um, in, in that way, and I feel like there maybe there's some I, I, some sort of teaching here, in the sense that if you don't integrate, then you end up coming out with a story like Chetegel, meaning there there's sort of here we're being told again according to the Hasidic teaching that there are multiple aspects of of Ravodat Hashem that are going to include the refuse, they're going to include parts of ourselves that are not as the intellect or right, whatever those other parts are, and we have to be integrated in order for Ravodat Hashem to be of a more complete form. And then in a moment, we'll have the Parsha of Kitisa or any of the Parshiyot where we speak about these complaints or these negative stories about Am Yisrael, where we feel like all of a sudden there's like this, this something is burst out, right? That there there's, it seemed like they were being given, you know, theory, laws, and everything was going smoothly. And then we have how, how it hits reality. And I feel like the way that the Parshiyot themselves are even sort of organized very much displays that idea of like the perfection, so to speak, of how the Mishkan is supposed to be built. And then in the middle, we have sort of that backside that exactly comes out. And then, of course, we'll have the actual conversation between God and, Hashem, uh, God and Moshe about right those different parts of of, uh, of God and what Moshe will be allowed to see. And I think that it's just like the Parshiot are integrated so much. Maybe that's what, of course, maybe that's what they're picking up on. Sure. I mean, the, all of Sefer Shemot has those ups and downs. You know, you have Yitziat Mitzrayim where everybody saw Hashem's powerful hand, you know, revealed miracles, and they come out. And then right after that, they start complaining again. And then they get to Har Sinai, and then they get the Torah. And then right after that, they have the Parashat, Parashat Mishpatim. And then the question is, well, like, if everybody is so enlightened, why do people steal from each other? And why do people kill each other? And why, like, what's going on? And then, and that's, that's, I think that the whole succession of, episodes in the parashot really just brings that point home. They stay in illumination all the time. And it just, it doesn't mean that some parts of life are worth living and other parts you just have to get through them, but that there's something to be done. There's a work, there's work that needs to be done in every stage and how you find the wisdom to understand how to get through those dark places. 
And is there is there any element of his Torah here that sort of explains to us how how we could do that, meaning how we function with those darker places? Good question. I think that he's encouraging people to take the lessons from the illuminated places, carry them with you, and apply them in the other places. In other words, he'll say, he says in some of his teachings that um, sometimes people have a very clear vision of, of Hashem's plan. You know, we have those times in our life where you got the job or you managed to um, do the project and you feel like, oh, Hashem is on your side and everything makes sense. I mean, sometimes it's rare, but some people feel that way sometimes that, that things are clear and I did this and that brought me to here and I davened and Hashem answered me and everything looks like it's going according to plan. And then I guess what he says, though, is that Hashem doesn't really like disappear. If you saw so clear that Hashem had a plan, he, he talks about tirdot, which he which are you know the worries that take up so much of our lives. And he says tirdot that the power of them shematridim otanu mi Hashem. In other words, they drive us away from Hashem. Even if we can understand that the things that quote unquote bad things that happen to us in order to remind us that there's a plan here and there's something we're supposed to be doing, the very question of you know what is Hashem already is is a, a, a tool that we can use in order to put meaning in those parts of life. Right. So it's sort of bringing bringing that emuna into the lelot, right? Of taking the, those beliefs and the clarity of those moments and bringing them, carrying them with you, even when you don't maybe cognitively, right? Or even in your heart feel that that's what you're experiencing at the moment. Yeah, actually, that's a, you, it's a good, it's a good, the good that you mentioned cognitively, because that's really the point that we tend to feel comfortable using our cognitive tools, but if the cognitive tools don't work for us, many of us just feel lost. And I think that's what the Beit Yaakov is, is saying. You know, there's the incense. You can't see it, but you can smell it. You can sense what Hashem is planning for you or what he wants you to do, even though it doesn't make sense to you. And maybe it doesn't make sense. It seems you just want some clear answer and you don't get it. So Hashem is talking to us sometimes through the darkness or through the suffering. And I think it's a very empowering message, after all, that we can decide where we're going to find meaning. And we can find meaning anywhere, not just in the places that are light, but also in the places that are dark. One other point that I, I wanted to make that brings us back to the whole aspect of the of the feminine and that that um, idea that I think is very prominent in the Beit Yaakov he ends one of his teachings um, by with the pasuk from Mishlei, and he says on that that the Musar uh, Avicha, he says that that's the pashtut of the text or of the things that we see. That's the you know halacha, what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to behave. And then there's this other aspect of Mecha, and the Beit Yaakov says that's the pnimiut. That's the inwardness of the of the Torah. In other words, that other side of what the Torah comes to to teach us, it just defines our, our outward activities. But there's also a lot of guidance here about what's supposed to happen on the inside. And what happens on the inside is something that I alone really am answerable toward it. That has to do with how you sense things and how you experience things and how you can process them, not necessarily intellectually, but 
emotionally um, in relationships. Um, and yeah, and that's what the, I think the Beit Yaakov really, uh, through his teachings, it tries to help people to understand. I think that one other piece I'll just add to that is that if anyone is a little bit confused by our use of the phrases, right, masculine and feminine, so first of all, just important to clarify that we do not mean male and female, and it's very important that that uh, be understood because these are attributes or or trends that can exist in, in anyone. Another reason why, meaning in either male or female, another reason why a lot of the teachings of uh, of Zohar, of Hasidut, and why it's also been speaking to a modern world is uh, because there is a degree of fluidity. Now, I don't mean gender fluidity, but I mean a fluidity of of character, meaning that people, male or female, can exhibit these different traits. And that also, that those sort of categories that sort of create more room for sort of a fullness of humanity, right? If we're speaking about that which we see, which we don't see, the external, the internal, the the sort of the more cognitive versus the emotional, uh, that we sort of live in a world that really has come, I think in a beautiful way, has come to value uh, integration and something that's organic. And so that's also true about, about feminine and masculine. It's not speaking about gender, but that we're talking about two parts of a whole, yin and yang, right? That's something that we're mostly familiar with. Uh, and so that's part of this worldview, again, which has become so attractive and exists in Hasidic thought and, and certainly in Kabbalistic thought in all different forms, not necessarily ones that totally coalesce with modern thinking, but do exhibit trends of a kind of wholeness. And so that, I think, is also what I'm sort of taking taking from these teachings of Rabbi Yaakov is a call for of a wholeness, of recognizing that we have we have disparate parts and we can have parts that don't feel like they coalesce, but ultimately part of our avodah is to create a synthesis between these parts. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your voice and uh, and coming on to speak to our listeners this week. Thank you, Sasa. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. 